Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and after a bit of a hiatus, we're back with a special episode today. Joining us for a foray into all things Ukraine are Fabrice Dupre and Eilish Hart, the editors of BNB's Ukraine coverage. We had a great conversation about how Zelensky is doing and more, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Bear Market Brief podcast. Fabrice and Eilish, great to have you on board today. Hi. We're going to take a little departure from the usual Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, It's exciting to have you both, uh, Fabrice and Eilish, put together our Ukraine coverage every week. So before we dive into all things Ukraine, I wanted to start by asking both of you to introduce yourselves. I can start. So my name is Fabrice Desprez. I'm a French journalist and analyst correspondent uh, here in Kiev, Ukraine. And I am the managing editor of the BNB Ukraine newsletter, which, yes, we publish every week. Great. So I'm Eilish Hart. I'm based in Canada at the moment, but I work on the Ukraine expert brief, which comes out every Wednesday. So I'm the deputy editor from BNB Ukraine. And my other job is I'm a news editor for Medusa. So I cover Russia as well. Uh, Near and dear to all of our hearts, to say the very least. So to turn to the first and I guess big question of the day and saying this transparently, I'm, I'm not as clued in to Ukraine as I as I once was. So to that effect, now last I was really clued in, Zelensky was newly elected, kind of rode this wave of populism, dissatisfaction against the more established political order, was really popular for it. And now, you know, as I, as I catch up, seeing and hearing a little dissatisfaction. So let's kind of talk about how President Zelensky is doing, what drove his popularity, how he's capitalized on that, uh, what he's accomplished, and if there are issues, what may be pulling him down? What's the gravity he's facing? So we'll start with Fabrice. All right. So Zelensky's popularity, big topic, right? Because when he was elected one year ago, he was triumphantly elected, absolutely crushed uh, his opponent, Petro Poroshenko. Then we had the parliamentary election in which, again, his party, Servant of the People, got the biggest uh, majority in the history of post-Soviet Ukraine. And that was a victory that was, again, riding on Zelensky's personality. You know, we had like complete unknown people. There were the famous case of the wedding photographer in uh, Zaporozhye, if I'm not mistaken, which won the deputy seat just by virtue of being Zelensky's candidate. So there was huge expectations. And unsurprisingly, those expectations were not met, which was, I think, pretty much impossible from the start. And so one year later, his popularity has been clearly decreasing, for sure. It's not, there was actually a few polls released last week, which have shown that it's not as bad as maybe it's been portrayed by many Western analysts in the sense that, of course, his popularity was always going to go down as soon as his biggest claim to popularity, which was to not be a politician, that that would end, you know, by virtue of becoming the president, that I would love her. But it still remains the country's most popular, most popular figure, right? So that's still not too bad. But yeah, he's been facing a lot of issues. Obviously, his popularity is something that matters a lot to him and that maybe drove him to some questionable decision, the main one being, yep. So where, just if I may butt in for a second, is his popularity at? What did the surveys reveal? Do you remember the percentages? 
Right. The latest poll by the rating agency was, if I remember correctly, that he had 51% of respondents not supporting him. So that was like, you know, the headline, a majority of respondents do not support him. 44% still supporting him. And the context that the polling agency was giving is that at the same point of the presidency, Poroshenko had 25% of support and Yanukovych, the president before him, had 26%. So now he doesn't have a majority supporting him in the poll, but compared to previous president, he's close to twice as popular. So, you know, glass house full, half empty. Yeah, I think the other thing that's really important to consider when you talk about Zelensky's popularity is not only is he much more popular than previous presidents were at the same point in their presidency, but also when you compare him to other party leaders, he's still head and shoulders a lot more popular than, say, Poroshenko or Yulia Tymoshenko are at this time. And I think part of what kind of drove Zelensky's election was a lot of people not voting for him as a way to vote against everyone else. And so even if his popularity is in the 40s right now, he's still seen as the best option, given who the other political candidates are. So obviously, he came in on very, very high expectations. And I think he himself came in very optimistic. And so I think not only is the population coming to reality at this point, I think he probably is too. But like I said, I still think he's seen largely as the best option politically. I would add on top of that that, you know, one, one year later, there is this clear sense that, of course, he could not fulfill all expectation. And there is also this popular idea, I would even say consensus right now in Kiev, that Zelensky is a weak president. You have this idea that he's someone who means well, who, you know, wants to do stuff, but who obviously doesn't have political experience, who's maybe not surrounded by the best people, and so he's struggling to maybe do the things he would like to do. And of course, this isn't great for his standing, but I have a feeling that it's also kind of helping him in, you know, the way that we know well, especially in Russia, of, you know, the good czar, bad boyars, where, uh, you know, he's trying his best. He has really good attention, but those damn corrupt officials and, you know, corrupt oligarchs are just getting in the way. And especially in those local elections, and we'll talk probably more about that later, but I, I think that could actually be used by Zelensky and his team around as pretty strong arguments to actually keeping as the popular figure. Yeah, I would add to that as well, if we're talking about ratings and approval ratings, his, like I said, like there's a lot of focus on them going up and down, and there's a lot of talk about how his ratings are very important to him. But not only are his ratings, approval ratings in particular, better than other politicians, they're also much more positive than the impression people have of the cabinet and the parliament. Like mm-hmm. the negative approval ratings for both the RADA and the, and the government itself are usually like 60 something, like 62% disapprove or 63% versus like him having 44% approval, for example. Like that's a huge difference in terms of a figure in government that people trust. He's kind of still that guy. Like like Fabrice said, I mean, people seem to believe that he's well-intentioned and, and wants to do good, but he's coming up against a system that they expect to work against him in the first place, which can lend itself in his favor. 
hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but it's not the same as Russia and Putin, but ever so, how about I say ever so slightly rhymes with like a, a leading figure above the rest of the political order. I mean, different phases. Uh, Russia is a much more a stronger state apparatus, I think would be safe to say, but ever so slightly reminds me of that. Fabrice, you're about to say something now. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that, interestingly, it's also something that I've heard even among Zelensky opponents, where, uh, so, you know, you have on the specter of opinion against Zelensky, you're going to have, like, the softest is just kind of weak, and the strongest is, like, a Russian puppet. But a lot of the time when I ask someone if they think that some controversial figures are coming back to power, where there are some politicized trials, something like that, I will ask them, you know, but so do you think Zelensky is behind that? And most of the time, they're going to tell me, no, we think it's people around Zelensky who are taking advantage of him. So you have always this idea of Zelensky being a weak figure who maybe isn't so bad in itself, but he's just being manipulated. Well, let's move on to topic two related. I'm actually going to throw in another topic here because I think they're related together. So the Ukraine is... I don't want to say necessarily dependent, but helped a lot by IMF support, helping uh, balance its budget, balance of payments, kind of stay stay afloat. There's been, as I, I've followed, especially of late, um, issues pushing through necessary anti-corruption measures that are kind of necessary for IMF aid. There's the rumor that you know Zelensky is kind of wholly owned by uh, Ihor Kalamoyski, which is you know not going to take a stance on whether that's true. I can actually would love to hear your thoughts about the extent to which those rumors are justified or fair in the first place. But also a lot of political drama about Naboo, Ukraine's uh, nascent, still fairly recent, anti-corruption agency and efforts to, to get a new leader in place there, running into some judicial headwinds. So starting with this whole Kolomoisky question, uh, just for, for people not in the loop, very prominent oligarch in Ukraine, has his popularity or influence rather grown Has Zelensky necessarily been good for him? I'll just say uh, right off the bat, I think obviously, like Fabrice said before, like one of the biggest and most critical things you'll hear of Zelensky on the anti-Zelensky end is that he's just a Kolomoisky puppet. I mean, I don't know the extent to which that's true or untrue, but the thing that always struck me as odd is that kind of ignores the amount of power and influence Kolomoisky had in Ukraine before Zelensky came along. I mean, he's an incredibly wealthy oligarch who had holdings. I mean, Privatbank is no longer in his possession, but I mean, he had that going for him for years and years and years. I mean, the guy's a billionaire and Ukraine for years has struggled with this problem of being very oligarch dominated. And it it always just kind of struck me as odd to say that, oh, well, now that Zelensky's president, Kolomoisky's power is just running amok and out of control when, I mean, he had a lot of influence all along. It's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> I think on the, you know, very loaded question, or is Zelensky Kolomoisky puppet or even, you know, Kolomoisky project, of course, it's pretty much impossible to give like a definitive answer. There are a few things that we can say. First, Zelensky's election allowed Kolomoisky to come back in the country. You know, it's, it's one thing he had been for several years. He'd been living between Switzerland and Israel because he was afraid of being arrested. And Zelensky's election allowed him com- to come back. It's also no secret that Zelensky's campaign was heavily supported by Kolomoisky. Kolomoisky himself said that 
you know, he would like to see Zelensky as a president. Now, once that election happened, there is no, I don't think we can, you know, really say that there is Kolomoisky presence that kind of drive every decision. Doesn't look like that. And in fact, in the last few months, especially with the latest reshuffle, the main focus of interest has been uh, Arina Dakhmetov, which is uh, Ukraine's richest, wealthiest uh, oligarch and which has seemed to be growing in influence in the last few months. And of course, who is, you know, a competitor of Kolomoisky. So we've had a redistribution of the of the cards rather than really one oligarchs taking everything. And to jump in, so by the reshuffle, you mean of the cabinet in, in the government, correct? Yes, absolutely. In March, uh, Zelensky fired the prime minister, Alexei Onchadouk, and most of the government and decided to, yes, appoint a new government. Typical of the times, I recall that happening only a couple of weeks ago, but you know, the difference between six months and three weeks during COVID is the same. But Eilish, you were, you were gonna say something. The thing I was going to add um, is there's also a lot of focus, like we said before, on uh, Zelensky being a Kolomorsky project, for example. But the thing that's kind of interesting, if you look at what ha- what's happening in the parliament, where a servant of the people does have this majority that's not so functional at this point, is that there's you know a, a faction within, within the servant of the people that people talk about as a mm-hmm. Kolomorsky faction. And a lot of the time, that group even if they're not that big or that necessarily influential, they create a lot of discourse that, to me at least, and to I think the impression that I get from a lot of experts is that the discourse and kind of the initiatives they put forward actually work against what was presented as the party's interests and Zelensky's own interests yeah. a lot of the time. And I think Nabu is a great example of that, where you've got some of these guys stirring up trouble that would definitely benefit oligarchs like Kolomoisky or his interest in like particular cases, but they don't kind of jive with what Zelensky and Servant of the People are working towards. So I think that's also something to consider. I mean, in terms of the campaign and Kolomoisky's backing of Zelensky's campaign and also like the influence that his media holdings have, like absolutely. I think at that point, some of these criticisms seemed at least to me more valid at this point, now that he's actually in in power and trying to make things work and like you said before hang on to these relationships with international organizations like the IMF which are absolutely crucial what these smaller factions do to kind of promote Kolomoisky's interests work against you know the the greater good in a way so I think that's also something to keep in mind. So turning to this Nabu situation. So as best I understand, uh, a court blocked the uh, appointed head from taking charge. Is that correct? And I've heard this is a very, very murky situation. Okay, Eilish is shaking her head. <laughs> There's something wrong there. Please uh, enlighten both me and our listeners. Sure. Yeah, I w- I've been reading up about this because the situation is so, so murky. I mean, they didn't block the appointment of the NABU director. What the court ruled was that the fact that he was appointed by Poroshenko was unconstitutional. And so, I mean, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but on the one hand, they're not wrong because the constitution doesn't mention NABU. On the other hand, the law governing the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine says the president will appoint the director. So, I mean, that's like 
a clear kind of conference conflict of interest there right off the bat. It's one that's been brought up before, and it's something that at the kind of legislative level, there haven't been much of an attempt to fix, even though it's been pointed out before that like the constitution and the law governing NABU weren't harmonized. But what gets murky here is instead of making an attempt to kind of fix the legislation, which is the actual problem, the constitutional court just pointed directly to the fact that Poroshenko appointing the director is the whole problem and that's what's unconstitutional. You are correct in that this is indeed murky constitutional issue. This isn't just, I mean, I've seen it presented as, oh, it just corrupts judges X, Y, and Z, but it it sounds like there actually may be a, a legal issue here, a valid, dare I say? For me, at least, it is kind of strange to have the president of a country that's trying to battle corruption to the extent that Ukraine is be the person in charge of appointing and dismissing the guy who's in charge of battling corruption in a way. I mean, that's a huge oversimplification, but that's one way of looking at it. But what kind of jumped out at me and what I saw when I was kind of looking through the analysis from places like the Anti-Corruption Action Center is that like the relevant provisions of the law weren't declared unconstitutional. It was Poroshenko's decree appointing Artem Sitnik. And the issue that arises there is that they've kind of backed themselves into a corner because now if Zelensky were to say, well, I'm going to dismiss him, that would also be unconstitutional, right? And if he were to appoint someone new, it's unconstitutional because you still haven't fixed the law. And so I think I'm pretty sure, and Fabrice, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, I think Maybe sometime last year, Zelensky did try to float a draft bill about correcting some of these yeah. things and bringing them in line, but it it's kind of been off the table as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, I think that's correct. So before we go further into this legal question, uh, to make sure we can fit in all of the exciting issues we have on the agenda for this episode, wanted to move things a bit north now, because as we know, Belarus uh, borders Ukraine. I think all eyes now are on Belarus. I'm actually in my my current job did some polling in Ukraine about the situation in Belarus, which we can we can talk about going forward. But what has Ukraine's role as far as the kind of crisis to its north been? Has Zelensky really been involved in this? Uh, What's what's the angle here for Ukraine? Ukraine's role has been fairly limited, I would say. You know, they were drawn into the crisis even before it started, because there was when uh, Lukashenko proudly announced the arrest of uh, 33 Russian mercenaries who we said were there to destabilize the situation in the country. Kiev realized that several of these mercenaries were had been involved in fighting with Russia-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine, and so tried to get the extradition. And that was one week before the presidential election on uh, the 9th of August. So Ukraine was already involved, and I think, and what I've heard from local analysts, that this kind of made it harder for Ukraine to react quickly when the first protest started. First, because it didn't see it coming, like everyone, but also it was involved in those negotiations to try to get those uh, mercenaries sent to Ukraine. And so they were kind of afraid of speaking too strongly against Lukashenko. The mercenaries were sent to Moscow on August 14th, so that kind of solved the issue. And so then Ukrainian diplomacy was a bit tougher. They announced a pause of the relationship with Belarus, which isn't exactly clear what it means, by the way. It's not really a freeze of the relationship. Okay, why not? 
But beyond this, Ukraine doesn't have a lot of leverage. Ukraine realizes that. It has even less now because, you know, before Lukashenko was kind of trying to do this balance between East and West. And so there was some space for Ukraine here. For example, on the topic of annexation of Crimea, Lukashenko was always, he never really recognized the annexation, never really fully condemned it either. But so there was, you know, there was some space to talk here. But now since everyone expects Lukashenko to go full east, let's say, that space is probably closing for, for Ukraine, so they will have even less leverage. And now they are basically trying to echo the Western position. Yeah, I think um, an, an interesting thing for me was kind of following the Ukrainian takes on what was happening in Belarus before and after the election. And like even before I think the protests started, people were watching to see what would happen. And I did see kind of among the expert circles and stuff, some people arguing, you know, from a Ukrainian perspective and what's good for Ukraine in terms of kind of foreign policy in the region. Some people were saying, well, in terms of Kiev's interests, Lukashenko isn't the worst option. Like if he's still in power, it makes Belarus's foreign policy predictable in a way. Like Fabrice said, he hasn't really recognized the annexation of Crimea. There's an understanding that he'll keep Russian troops away from uh, Ukraine's northern borders and things like that. So some people were saying, you know, when he gets reelected, because that was the presumption since Belarus hasn't had free or fair elections in its independent history, it's not that bad for us. Once the things kicked off with the mercenaries, like you said, and then, of course, the elections and all the protests that followed, I think a lot of people in Kyiv kind of had to rethink how they were looking at Belarus. And I think one of the questions that would, will be interesting going forward will be, like you said, uh, Fabrice, that Ukraine is now watching to see what the EU is going to do. And if the EU slaps sanctions on Lukashenko or on other people in the Belarusian authorities who are responsible for some of these crackdowns and protesters, it'll be interesting to see whether or not Kyiv follows suit and how that will affect kind of relations in the region. Because a lot of people are saying, well, if that does happen, kind of the, the normalization that appeared to be going on in relations with Belarus to some extent is kind of out the window and they're pushed back towards Moscow. While we're on the topic, we talked about the election uh, in Belarus. But, you know, with all the chaos going on, let's not forget Ukraine in just over a month also has local elections. So we have a few minutes left. Can you give us a preview of kind of what these elections may mean or not mean? What, what should we expect? Sure. So, yeah, local election usually on the biggest issue in Ukraine. This year, it's a little bit different for several reasons. The first and I guess the biggest one is that this is the first election that Delinsky might lose. Not literally, of course, he's not you know, competing in any of the election, but there are, his party could have a lot of trouble in several cities because, yes, it's local elections, so mayors and city councils all over Ukraine. And so all parties from, you know, Poroshenko, European Solidarity Party to uh, the pro-Russian opposition platform, all parties are seeing this as a major opportunity to beat Zelensky, servant of the people. The other big thing is that there is still the coronavirus pandemic happening, that the situation has been actually getting worse and worse in Ukraine in the last few weeks. The number of cases has been rising. You know, this summer it was generally around 
1,500 new cases every day. Right now, we are at about 3,000 and about 50 dead people every day, which is bad and getting worse. One big political consequence of this is that it has made a lot of cities and regions very unhappy about the quarantine measures. So there have been, you know, a lot of rebellion against the center, let's say. So this will also be an issue. And how will the election happen in those conditions is a little bit unclear. So yeah, it's unusual time for such election. And it's the first major electoral challenge for Zelensky. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I'll add is in terms of a reason to watch these local elections is because these are happening after decentralization reforms. So whoever gets elected this time around in, into these you know, governing bodies will have more autonomy and they'll also be handling more tax dollars than the previous administration. So I think that's something that's important. On the other hand, I don't necessarily know if that importance is resonating with the electorate at this point. I mean, if you look at some of the polling that's happening right now, a lot of people are still, you know, under the impression that these elections won't really change anything at the regional level. Like they don't expect any kind of vast improvements despite the reforms that have happened. And so I think, I I don't know what voter turnout will be like in terms of the fact that there is a, a pandemic and people don't really expect these elections to have to be very impactful. That said, like Fabrice said before, like a lot of groups are seeing this as elections happening at a level where servant of the people can be beaten, in part because they don't have the kind of regional networks that other more established parties have throughout the region. So I think that's an interesting thing to watch. I mean, even what servant of the people ran on last year during the parliamentary elections was being a Zelensky's party and B, all new faces. You know, like we're not the party in power, we're the underdogs, we're going to bring something new to politics. Now at kind of the parliamentary level, Servant of the People has had a majority for a year. They got some stuff done in the first six months, but it's dropped off significantly and they no longer have, you know, the edge of saying we're new. And that is kind of what their brand ran on before. And at this point, people have an impression of what Servant of the People's politicians do. And so that brand doesn't have the same kind of power it did last year. Interesting point. And I think on that note, we are out of time. So thank you so much to both of you for joining. This was really enlightening for me and I'm sure the listeners too. Uh, So I, for one, will be looking forward to the next editions of the Ukraine Brief. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you as always for joining and stay tuned for future episodes. And don't forget to follow BNB Russia and Ukraine at the hashtag at Bear Market Brief. BMB is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Philadelphia. For more information about this and other initiatives, be sure to visit fpri.org.